Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Back in 1933, Joan Crawford appeared in an ad for Coca-Cola. But in 1955, her allegiance shifted when she married, famously, Pepsi-Cola chairman and CEO of the company, Alfred Steele. He died just four years later. But Crawford refused to give up her $60,000 a year seat on the Pepsi board, and she held that until 1973. Now, I was watching Larry King live reruns recently as he's passed away, and so I wanted to go back and have a little bit of an explore, and I watched an extended interview with Christina Crawford. Now, it was pretty damned fascinating, I have to say, the whole way through, And Christina presented as someone who really was just giving her own version of events. She was totally honest, it seemed. But towards the end of the chat, she said something so shocking that it made me pause the video and go back to double check if I had heard what she said correctly. She makes a clear insinuation that her adoptive mother, Joan, murdered her husband, Alfred Steele, and I could have fallen off my couch. Immediately, I reached out to Joan Crawford guru, Brian Johnson. Brian is a very reliable archivist, really, much like a historian. He uses sources of information to support or disprove things that may or may not have happened in Joan's life. G'day, Brian. Hi, thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's good to speak to you again. The first conversation we had is very popular, so people can go back and watch that. That's a bit of a run-through of Joan's life in general based on what I saw in Feud. So you were sort of disproving some things that they got wrong there. But you run an amazing website. It's called The Concluding Chapter of Crawford, which is a go-to for anyone who's making documentaries, TV programs about Joan. They all use it, and obviously there's a huge fan base out there who use it too. So listen, let's cut to the chase, Brian. I'm hoping you can confirm it. Did Joan push Alfred down the stairs and to his death? (laughs) No, she did not do that. And uh, unfortunately, many people have come to believe that to be true, but it is in fact not true. That is not the cause of death of Alfred Steele. All right. Well, let's, let's look at some of the quotes from Christina Crawford. Mr. Steele treated you well. Yes, but he died so quickly after they were married. It was only three years and I always thought it was very suspicious. About his death? You yeah. suspected foul I, play? I always did, yes. There was nothing wrong with him. What was the cause of death? Somehow he fell down the stairs. She said, he died so quickly after they were married, I always thought it was suspicious. I suspected foul play. There was nothing wrong with him. And then she continued, when I heard about my stepfather's death, My first thought was, my God, she killed him. She was capable of murder. She tried to kill me when I was a child. I believe Al Steele's death was suspicious and a cover-up took place. I mean, this is damning stuff, Brian. This is amazing stuff. And from someone who was there. So why shouldn't we be taking this seriously? Well, uh, let me first correct something you just said. Uh, You said it was by someone who was there. 
uh, Christina Crawford was not there when Alfred Steele passed away. As a matter of fact, she had, was in London, England, and had been in London, England since March. And um, Al Steele died roughly a month and a half after she had left the United States for England on a trip where she lived for, with friends for about three months. One thing that she says that's very interesting is the cause of death is falling downstairs. And she has never elaborated as to why she believes she's never stated a fact or a witness to this effect, uh, only her belief that he fell down the stairs. And she's never stated why she has used that method for a cause of death. I have Alfred Steele's death certificate. And his death certificate does not list uh, his death as any type of blunt, a blunt force trauma, uh, a fall, or anything thereof. His death is listed as a coronary arrest, a heart attack. There's a there's a big difference between someone who falls down the stairs versus someone who has a heart attack. And uh, someone that has a <laughs> that falls down the stairs, they're going to have impact, bruising, uh, injury to the the physical body, and that's going to be very noticeable to a coroner it's very hard to cover that type of death up uh, a fall versus a heart attack and um a coroner was called to the apartment uh and a coroner did examine alfred still and a cause of death was not from a fall from the information that you have brian was joan crawford in the house when alfred passed away yes she was he according to her and according to the death certificate he Passed away early the morning of April 19th, 1959. Um, she, according to Joan, she describes his death, uh, or rather how she found him dead, and uh, her book, A Portrait of Joan. And according to Joan, she awoke that morning and went into his room, and he was lying dead next to his bed. And that is how she found him. And she said that when she found him, he was already cold. So he had been dead for a little bit of time, uh, at least, you know, probably roughly an hour or so when she found him around 7 a.m. that morning. And um, one thing you will not find in any book, you will not find it anywhere on the Internet unless it's on my website. This is something that, as far as I can tell, I'm the only source to mention this. But the morning that he was found dead, they were actually planning a trip. Uh, to Jamaica, and it was going to be a 10-day vacation, not only as a vacation to rest from a recent cross-country tour that Al Steele and Joan had made for Pepsi, but also for Al Steele's birthday, which was coming up in just a few days. And one person I interviewed, his name uh, was Robert Shercliffe. Unfortunately, he passed away just this past year at 91. But prior to his passing, I was fortunate enough to interview him. And Mr. Shercliffe had saw Joan and Alfred the day prior to his death. And in Washington, there was an event, a dinner for Pepsi executives. And Mr. Shercliffe was at the dinner. And he remembered it very well. And he remembered at the dinner that Al still did not look very well. He told me that Al looked exhausted. He looked very tired. And he <laughs> told me that he recalled even telling Alfred that, he, that gosh, we can't have anything happen to you because we'd really be lost, meaning the company Pepsi would be. So he was visibly not well the day before his death. 
and looked exhausted. And that is from a first-hand source. She says the official cause of death was heart failure, but he just had a company checkup and the doctor gave him a clean bill of health. He was only 54 years old. Now, first of all, for what it's worth, when I look at photos of him, my God, he does look a lot older than 54. He doesn't look particularly healthy, I've got to say. Um, is it correct that he just had a company checkup and been given the all clear? Do we know that for a fact? For one, he was not 54. She's wrong. When she says he was 54, she says that in Mommy Dearest, um, the 1978 version, which is drastically different from the anniversary edition in 1998, whereby she she makes this allegation about his death. Uh, but he was not 54. Um, he died in 1959. And at that time, his he would have been 58. So she had the, his date of birth wrong when she's mentioning this. Um I don't know what her source is that he had just had a checkup with the company doctor. Um, I also, one person I interviewed was Alfred Steele's son-in-law. And he had told me that when Al Steele passed away, they went, of course, to New York. And they actually sat in the family car with Alfred Steele's doctor, who was the doctor for Pepsi. And... He said that his wife felt that the doctor was responsible for Al's death more than anyone, not because he had recently had a checkup that said he was fine, but because the doctor was not evaluating his health properly. And the way he described it to me is the doctor who was the doctor for Pepsi, who was overseeing Alfred Steele's health at the time was something of a ladder climber within society of New York and wanted more of a high-end clientele. He was a fairly new doctor. He was not a, a, an inexperienced doctor, but he was still fairly new and was more interested in building his clientele with New York's elite and high society and not as much interested in treating their ailments and actually making sure that they were healthy. And... Alfred still had had surgery uh, in the years prior to to his death. He he was he was in what you'd consider good health, but he was not the fit bill of health by any means. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to talk. The show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. You referred to sort of motive back there, Brian. You said, you know, they were planning things in advance, so that might, you know, be a little clue that, you know, she wasn't <laughs> planning to do anything. Christina very much links this conversation in the Larry King interview, at least, to her own experience with Joan as an impulsively violent person who could turn on a dime and become violent over irrational things. She certainly had a violent experience with Joan, according to herself. She also says that she was physically assaulted by Joan for allegedly flirting with Alfred as, as well. She says that Joan was jealous of her relationship with Alfred. Is there any currency in that? I don't think that Joan was jealous of Christina in regard to her marriage and relationship with Alfred Steele. However, I would like to mention that 
other people I have spoken with and interviewed who were they were at one time friends with Christina. They terminated their friendship with her because of her behavior. Um, have told me that Christina was extremely promiscuous, flirtatious, and um, was, I don't know how to say it in a very nice way, but um, tried to lead men on. Um, one example, if you would like me to give you, is from a friend of Christina's. Her name uh, was Mickey Beeman. Um, if you look into Mommy Dearest, you'll find her name Mickey. I don't believe it mentions her last name, but she was a friend of Christina's who Christina met at Carnegie Tech. And um, she terminated their friendship after her Mickey and her friend, who was a male friend of hers, went to visit Christina uh, at her New York flat. And uh, Christina undressed in front of them, which made Mickey uncomfortable. And she ended up leaving, and uh, her friend stayed behind with Christina. Uh, to say it very nicely, it sounds like Christina was trying to flirt her way into becoming involved with Mickey's male friend. And um, again, this is a firsthand source of a person who knew Christina. And from what I have read and from what people have told me in that situation, Christina had a habit of trying to lure man in. Was she trying to do this with Alfred Steele, which actually this would have taken place um, in, at the end of 1955, shortly after their marriage, uh, at, uh, Joan's marriage to Alfred Steele. And could Joan have told her, that's my husband, get your own man? Possibly. I would not doubt that, given what I've been told about Christina. Was Joan jealous of Christina? No, I don't think so. Okay, but in that interview, there was one thing that came across to me, pure and clear. Christina did have a great fondness, affection, and respect for Alfred. Uh, she spoke about him in very kind terms. I think that one reason is you have to offset, or at least she does in her story, she has to offset Joan and Alfred still into such a degree that uh, it makes Joan seem like the villain of the two. However, I have an unpublished interview with Joan and Alfred Steele from the late 50s. It was done with a reporter. It's never been published. And Alfred Steele did not have nice things to say about Christina Crawford. <laughs> Needless Ooh. to say, he, he said some, some pretty uh, damning things about Christina in this interview um, about how she was living her life and... Uh, Again, her uh, promiscuous behavior. We we have to accept that Christina. I'm sure she even made it clear that she was not necessarily a witness to this alleged murder, which she very clearly insinuated. However, she is looking at the situation through her own eyes, so she wasn't a witness, but she can attest to her own experiences. She recalls a number of beatings from Joan. Um, one when she was 13 years old is particularly shocking, Brian, I have to say, at least according to her version of events. She said that she had absolutely no doubt that she would have died if it wasn't for somebody intervening. She's looked into Joan's eyes and at the very least uh, she seems to believe that Joan is capable of murder. So even though she might be wrong here and or doesn't have any evidence for it, she believes that Joan was capable of that. I would like to address that um, in regard to the 
instance where Christina claims Joan attempted to strangle her. And uh, I actually have proof to the contrary, hard, hard proof against that claim by Christina. I, again, I have an unpublished interview with a lady by the name of Billy Green. She was Joan's assistant at the time. This was actually in June of 1953. The assistant, Billy Green, in the interview, talks about this, this very instance. And according to Billy Green, Joan did not try to strangle Christina. Um, she adamantly denies that. And one thing I'd like to point out also is the different versions of Christina's book, Mommy Dearest. If you were to look in the 1978 version, the original version, when she recalls this incident, she refers to the person in the house who, quote unquote, you know, pulls Joan off of her as simply the new secretary. Um, if you look under her 20th anniversary edition, which was the edition when she began to claim that Joan killed Alfred Steele and each subsequent anniversary edition, she now refers to the quote unquote new secretary by name and calls her Billy. This interview I have with Billy Green was conducted in 1981 and it was just after she had read the book and had read the screenplay for the film, which was in production. And, uh, she was really horrified by what, what she was reading. And, uh, she says in her interview, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, I am quoted as saying something along the lines of stop, John, stop. You're going to kill her. And Billy Green denies ever saying such. She denies Joan ever strangling Christina. And she adamantly denies any type of brutality that night by Joan Crawford against Christina. Um, that's one part of the proof I have. Um, the second part is by Christina herself in her own words. When she contested Joan's estate in 1977, her estate forced her to go through two under oath depositions. And within the deposition, Christina is questioned, actually very adamantly questioned about this incident in particular. Christina's response under oath during the deposition when asked about the strangling attempt, her words are, I do not know what you're referring to. So, as you said, she says in her book that there's a look in Joan's eyes that she will never forget. Then under an under oath deposition during the same time, this was the deposition was taken during the exact same time she was writing Mommy Dearest. In the deposition, she tells the attorney she does not know what he's referring to. This part fascinates me, Brian. You've, you've actually spoken to Christina um, and possibly still do. Aren't you tempted to ask her about, for example, the stairs? Like, because it sounds to me like um, she has some information about him falling down the stairs or any of the other insinuations that she has made. Are you not tempted to ask her just, you know, very targeted, tailored questions about some of these issues that appear to have contradictory evidence? No, I haven't. Um, simply because I know that she would not answer anything that she would have to say, I believe, on the topic of her mother, or as she refers to her, her adopted mother. Um, 
is pretty much already out there by Christina in her book. Um, there's no real variant to what she would say. And this is simply from people I have talked with and the many, many interviews I have read of Christina's. Even knowing Christina in person would not grant someone any more insight than what they would have from the book they can purchase. <laughs> Brian, do you think Joan was capable of, of violence? No, I don't believe Joan was capable of violence. Um simply because that does not coincide with anything other people who knew her has ever claimed. Other story by any person that knew her firsthand that cites her as being a violent person. I mean, it's the logic is not there. And someone who interacted with as many people as Joan interacted with, or as many people who she interacted with during times of stress, there would be other examples of this coming to the surface and it just does not exist to be really clear on this point you're saying in the many relationships that joan had with uh, you know husbands boyfriends and her other children there is no evidence of violence within any of those relationships there are, are no other instances of joan being violent with with any of her husbands um after each marriage with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Francho Tone, Philip Terry, they, all three husbands and Joan remained friends until the end of Joan's life. There are the claims that Francho could be violent and uh, toward Joan. There's claims of that, but there's no claims of her being violent against any husbands. After Mommy Dearest was published, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. defended John, and he said something to the effect of the person who was described in the book Mommy Dearest was not the person he knew. But of the children, Brian, I'm sure that there was um, Christina's brother did support uh, Christina's version of events to an extent and also talked about his own abuse. Am I wrong about that? Well, that's a very good question. Um, Christina wrote her book, Christopher only spoke publicly about Christina's book and about Joan on a couple of occasions. And on those occasions, he did not actually go through Christina's book and verify what, what parts of it were true or that he knew of. Um, within his interviews, he only referred to Joan as a bitch. That's what he referred to her as. And his issue with her was mainly over her not helping him financially as an adult. One aspect of Christopher and Joan I would like to mention is the harness that he wore while asleep. This is something that is never mentioned, and it should be, because it puts the whole issue into proper context. But uh, Christopher was placed in a harness at night at the recommendation of Joan's family doctor. I've talked with, with Christopher's own daughter, and um, what she believes her father had was attention deficit disorder because her brother has it and her two sons have it, and she feels there's a genetic component to it. And Christopher had a habit at night of wanting to get up out of bed 
and wander outside. He wasn't running away from home, as people may try to insinuate. He would go outside and wander around in the yard. He would go outside and, and play in the middle of the night, which is dangerous for a child, a small child, and particularly a child of a celebrity who is more exposed to the possibility of being kidnapped, held for ransom, and so forth, if someone was to find him or abduct him. Well, when this was going on in the 1940s, Joan went to her family doctor, like someone would do today if they had a child that seemed to be overactive and have discipline problems, and they're trying to discover what it is and what the solution would be. There was no such thing as attention deficit disorder. So her family doctor's recommendation to her was to put him in a harness where he could not get up out of bed, thus preventing him from going outside. A lot of people believe, and Christina writes it as if, Joan put him out harness to be cruel to him. That is not the case. The case is actually that was under a doctor's recommendation. It is interesting, though, that in interviews, Christina is adamant that uh, Christopher was abused if uh, as as much as she was, allegedly, if not worse. So I've, I've heard her say that. However, you've pointed out that there are some reasons why we should doubt Christina's version of events. Is it correct that she was actually successfully sued by one of her adopted siblings for making a false claim about her being a twin? Yes, that's true. Christina was sued. Kathy Lalonde sued Christina in federal court in 1999, following Christina claiming repeatedly that she and her sister Cindy were not twins. And in some instances, claiming that they were illegitimately adopted and um, that they were not even related, not only claiming that they weren't twins, but also claiming they weren't related. I'd also like to point out that Christina began making these claims about her twin sisters at the same time she was now making the claims about Joan killing Alfred Steele. Um, Kathy Delon was successful in her lawsuit. What ultimately happened was Christina settled. They came to a settlement and settled the lawsuit. And um, Kathy Lalonde and her sister Cindy were twins. They were uh, fraternal twins. They weren't identical twins, but they were fraternal twins. And they were able to prove not only were they twins, but their adoptions were legitimate. There was no type of illegal practice that took place. Their mother died as from complications of childbirth, of their childbirth, and they were placed up for adoption through the Tennessee Children's Home, which does not have a very good reputation due to Georgia Tan, who ran it. She did have a reputation of doing things illegally. However, in the case of Cindy and Kathy, their adoptions were completely legitimate and above board when Joan adopted them. She seems to believe what she's saying. If there's so many different versions of events which don't support what she's claiming, particularly to round this off around Alfred's death, what's the motivation? And you've met her. Why do you believe she is making these claims if she just truly doesn't believe they're not true? Well, that's a very good question, and I think that's probably a question that many people have when trying to make a determination as to if she's telling the truth or if she's exaggerating the truth. Um, 
probably a good way to answer that would be through a firsthand source. And again, I would like to refer to Billy Green, John's assistant during the 1950s. 1953, Billy Green asked her why she was telling Chadwick's that she had no clothes to wear. Because apparently Chadwick's was contacting Joan and asking Joan to send her some clothes because she did not have clothes. And Billy Green asked Christina, why are you saying you don't have clothes after we spent a day packing clothes for you and sending them with you to Chadwick's? And Christina's response to Billy Green was that she was giving her clothes away to her friends. And Billy Green asked her, why are you giving your clothes away? And she just said she wanted to. Billy Green asked her, are you doing this in order to make friends? And she said, no, she's just doing it because she wants to. And she asked Christina, does she not understand that that's making her mother look bad? And she asked her, "Did you do you want a different mother than Joan? And she says, no, she didn't. And so I think the reason behind why Christina says the things that she says could be complicated and it's nothing new. And that's my what I'm trying to draw upon within reciting that story is this is something that goes back into her teenage years. There's a history of this. Christina has written several books where she is the quote unquote victim of circumstance. She is the victim of other people. Mommy Dearest is only one survivor. She play. She describes herself as a victim of many people. There's another book she wrote called Scammed. It's a little known book, very hard to find, where it's an entire book about her being scammed by someone on the internet. That's her most recent book. So you have this person who has a history of being victimized by all of these people. And unfortunately, the books where she really... (laughs) describes being victimized by all of these other people who are not Joan Crawford are not as popular and well-known. But when you put them all together in context to the person writing them, it comes to the surface and a person cannot help but draw upon the inference that this is someone who seems to be a victim a lot and seems to be a victim of a lot of people. And there's a lot of coincidence within that. The interesting part, though, Brian, um, one of those behaviours that is classic of someone who has actually experienced abuse and trauma is pathological lying, is promiscuity. So that's the fascinating thing here. For everything you've said, and, and I love the way you've said it, you've supported it with evidence and accounts and sources, and I so appreciate that. But the fascinating part for me is that despite all of that, some of the behaviours that she exhibits according to even your own account and all the other accounts that you've shared, would actually indicate that something has gone significantly wrong in her childhood. Children who are adopted who have issues emotionally due to that and can exhibit these exact same symptoms. Um, I would also say that I don't believe that everything with with Christina's childhood was idyllic. Um, I think that she was emotionally neglected to a, to a certain extent. I think uh, Joan was not always the most 
maternal parent emotionally and sometimes emotional neglect in that way can contribute to someone having issues later in life. Well, the death of Alfred Steele, I've got to say, Brian, it's a fascinating kind of sidebar to the whole mummy dearest chapter of Joan Crawford's life. And, and Brian, as always, you've been an incredible source of information. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on your show. And um, I hope this has given your listeners something to think about. When you would be hit as a child, it would be for things like... Mm. Not picking up my clothes, um, saying no, um, a look, an attitude, an attitude, yes. And uh, And what kind of hitting? What kind of abuse? I mean, was it a slap on the hand? No, 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 no. It was with objects. It was with objects, uh, objects, um, hairbrushes, and uh, the famous hangers, of course. Mm -hmm. It it, it was very violent, and, and one time, you know, she tried to kill me. I mean, I am positive that if there was not somebody in the house, she would have killed me. She knocked me over. She was choking me. I thought I was going to die. How old were you? 13. And that was the last time we had any physical violence because I knew that if it happened again, I would do everything in my power to protect myself.